Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 15, and then we'll also be covering quite a bit of ground this morning. We're going to wind up just as Caroline prompted us, all the way in chapter 17, verse 7, um, and we'll get out of here on time, too. That's pretty remarkable. Um, I'm so grateful and delighted to be back in Exodus. I'm grateful for each and every one of you and your attendance this morning and your attention to God's Word. We have those little sheets that you can get coming in that are an easy way for you to make notes through the sermon. You can also make notes online as you follow along with the link there that's in our published sermon online. In Exodus 15, we're going to come to one of three scenes. I'll set that up for you in just a moment. If this is your first time here, I'm so delighted that you've come. Uh, make sure that you let us know that you're here. Maybe jot your name and an email address or phone number in the back of one of those envelopes and drop it in the box on the way out. I'd just like to follow up with you, see how I can pray for you, minister to you. Those of you watching online, let us know that you're watching. Um, Ted Smith gave me a shout out today from uh, Alabama. So it, it works down there, the interweb, just so you know. So I'm grateful for that. A man from Philadelphia I discovered this week in some reading as I was preparing for the time this morning. He was ordained to the pastoral ministry and it was distinct and kind of special that he was. It was remarkable because only four years earlier, this man had almost dropped out of church altogether. The man had dedicated his life to serving God at the time, he was working for a church and attending seminary. His daughter, as he was preparing for ministry, his newborn daughter was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. As far as the man was concerned, this was not what he signed up for. This was not a part of the bargain. The deal was that he would serve God and God would bless him. And if God stopped blessing him, the deal was off. It wasn't until he turned his bitterness over to the Lord later on that he was able to trust God even through his suffering. That was the beginning of his restoration to joy and his usefulness in ministry. That's a pretty harsh reality and, and certainly we can say, wow, what a great anecdote or story, but I dare say that many of us in this room watching this morning have been tempted when the battle got hot, when the test came on strong. We probably said, this is not what I signed up for. God's people, as we were with them the last time we were in Exodus together, were rejoicing. It was Thanksgiving of 2020 when we were last in Exodus 15 and when we were last in this series on Exodus. They're rejoicing because why? They're just kids. What had just happened? Let me hear from the kids in the room. What had just happened for Israel in that point? Why were they singing and dancing? They had just left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. Awesome. That's amazing. They had a lot to shout about. The Egyptian army was drowned behind them. It was a remarkable occurrence. They were excited. They were singing. That sermon was so easy to preach on Thanksgiving Sunday. The text just kind of preached itself. Here they are singing songs about deliverance. They get done being delivered from God's enemies. And after three days journey into the wilderness, they're moving toward a different set of trials. They are worried about a lack of food and water. This morning, we're going to encounter three scenes that involve testing after this incredible triumph. 
there are clear parallels to Jesus Christ, which you will probably get to in your mind and in your heart before I have a chance to say them from the scriptures. The first two scenes are God testing his people to see whether or not they'll trust and obey him when uh, things get tight on their pilgrimage. The third test, though, the third scene at Rephidim is where God's people, watch this, put God on trial and test the Lord, questioning whether the God that provided in the past will be faithful in the present. We're about to enter what Charles Spurgeon referred to as Wilderness University, the Cambridge and Oxford for God's students. The people of God are being led by the God of all creation and God is not leading them from the Red Sea to the promised land. He's leading them from the Red Sea into the wilderness. Going through the wilderness is not necessary for, e for Israel's salvation. They had already been delivered, but it was absolutely necessary for their, big word kids, sanctification. It means setting them apart to show they belong to God. Clement of Rome writes of this that God did this that he might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long continued familiarity with the customs of the Egyptians. Wow. I wonder what God may need to take us through to root out the evils which cling to us in the long continued customs that we're exposed to. Let's go to scene one bitter water scene one bitter water we've just read the passage i won't go back and reread the passage but in exodus 15 20 through through 27 again the people have just sung the lord's praise and then they turn to moses and say hey we're thirsty we're thirsty <laughs> have you ever had that happen you have a moment that's so special uh, let me talk to parents in the room that maybe do a, a family time or whether it's a spiritual time or just a time with guests over or uh, just a poignant moment, and right in that moment, one of the littlest ones says, I need to go to the bathroom, you know, or something just kind of out in left field, and it totally takes the edge off the moment. They've just come off of this high praise, and they're in the wilderness, and they, they're freaking out a little bit because they don't see water. It's one of our most basic physical needs. The lack of water troubled them. They're in a desert, and, and they, they think they should have found water water by now and then they see this oasis at what they will call Mara boy they see this flowing water and they're like look there's water for us to drink they get to it and it's bitter it's undrinkable and how do they respond to this do they respond by saying oh God you have been faithful to lead us out of Egypt's bondage you've you've blazed a trail for us quite literally you've led us with a cloud you've led us with fire you won't abandon us here. No, they grumble. Look at verse 24 in the text. Verse 24, Exodus 15, 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Make no mistake, grumbling and complaining are signs of ungratefulness, self-centeredness, immaturity, and insecurity. Is your first reaction to trouble faith-filled prayer? Or is it grumbling and anxiety? 
This one's a little tough to swallow, so pull your big boy pants on for just a minute. Let me get up in your business. When we grumble and complain, we're the most like atheists. In fact, anxiety and complaining have been referred to as functional atheism. When you worry about everything, are you trusting God for anything? Moses takes the issue right to the Lord, and the Lord directs his path. It reminds me of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Your brain is probably already there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Moses takes a log and throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet instead of bitter. This is a miracle. Now, I've said this before, if you'll recall in our times, especially when we worked through the plagues of Egypt, you would be shocked. I hope that that shock is lessening because I say it probably too much, but it's amazing, Pastor D and his years and years of preaching, at the amount of ink that's hit a paper to try to explain away miracles. I mean, it's like some people have set out to give a natural explanation for the supernatural. And I'm just wondering, man, if we could take our time that we invest trying to explain away miracles and just maybe praise the Lord and tell somebody else about him and, hey, look at this. I don't know. I wonder what shape the world would be in. But this was a miracle. They tried to replicate this for years, looking for uh, certain types of hyssop and all these types of uh, trees and things that are available out there. They can't replicate this experience. This is a miracle. This bitter, undrinkable water was made sweet. Why? Because of the grace of God. It's not amazing that God did a miracle here. It's amazing that he was willing to do it for a bunch of complainers. Like these people didn't go, God, you're awesome. Holy is the Lord. Would you make the water sweet? Then nothing of that happened. They weren't singing the Lord's praises. This wasn't like, let's worship God and watch him move, right? I know sometimes people can be so optimistic and positive, you want to say, touch him, Lord, and use my hand. I get it, but they weren't even there. They were complaining, and God, in his grace, gives them sweet water. Wow. I don't want to get too far into application yet, but isn't your mind at Romans 5, 8? But God commended his love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't even trying to live righteously. We might as well have been the ones plucking the beard from his face, spitting as him as he walked by, nailing the nails in his hand, hoisting him onto the cross, and he still died for us. That's grace. There's grace here that bitter water is made sweet. While we're there thinking about Calvary, can you see the spotless Lamb of God? The sweet and perfect embodiment of God's amazing grace on display for humanity, pierced and crucified for the sins of the whole world? We, we see the sweet love of God on display in Christ's life. We see the sweet grace of God on display at the cross. At the same time, we see the bitterness of our sins that put him there before that Sanhedrin. The bitterness of our rebellion that nailed him to those two beams of wood. The bitterness of our guilt, 
our shame, our despair that convicted him of crimes he didn't commit. He bore our bitter sins on the cross that we might taste the sweet, amazing grace on this side of the resurrection. Move forward in this. It's pretty remarkable here. God then gives them this micro-covenant. Look at it in verse 26, if you've got your Bibles there. Verse 26, God says, If you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the disease on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. I want to zoom out of this for a moment and give you a principle here that I think is easy to miss when we get all tied up into diseases and things like that and healing let's just zoom out for a moment these requirements were not put on Israel for their salvation they were already saved you get it they had already been delivered they'd come out this was to teach them to live for God's glory these were for their here's that word again sanctification the setting them apart so that the world might look at them and see the glory of God bitter made sweet indeed. Just as a side note, it's not in my notes, but it popped into my view. They saw those waters at Mara, didn't know they were bitter. They thought, oh good, here's something we can drink. Listen, the world will put false oasis in front of you all the time. And you'll go after this and you'll go after that. If you're not careful, you'll take and drink in. It's like drinking salt water. It's like drinking well, I started to say soft drinks all the time, but I don't want to convict too many people in the room. I'm just saying. So it's like drinking things as adults. We know we shouldn't drink all the time. They're not good for you. They can't sustain you. You need water for life. Now, some of you are already here negotiating your mind. Well, there's water in coffee. Yes, I know that, but you need actual water, right? Don't be deceived or put off. Don't trick yourself into drinking bitter water and get used to the taste Nah, keep it bitter. Go after the fresh water from God. Let's move to scene two. They move from Mara and head for Elam. Elam was a place of abundance. It's usually identified with the Wadi Garandel, a lush oasis in northern Sinai about seven miles south of Mara. A month later, God's people are headed south and east, deeper into the wilderness, the desert of sin between Elam and Sinai. They're headed towards Sinai. You get it? Soon the Israelites were tired and hungry, and once again, they start to complain, right? What do they do? They're like, God, you know, thanks for forgiving us when we complained. We, we knew better. Lord, we're, we're getting hungry, and we know you're going to provide. We're just excited to see how you're going to do it. Nope. <laughs> Look at the text, verses 2 and 3 in chapter 16. And the whole congregation, now some pastors can deal with it if you've got one or two complainers, but when everybody lines up to grumble, that's a not a good day. The whole congregation of people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and said uh, to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's quite an accusation. Just, can I get you to look at that one? Just look at it in your mind. So they're thinking in Egypt, remember where they were enslaved and in bondage and their straw was taken away to make bricks and the only reason Pharaoh kept them strong was so he didn't have to pay for their medical bills so they could make more stuff. 
They're saying, we had meat pots. and You brought us out here. You have brought us out here to kill us with hunger. Now, let me just give you a little news facts. Remember, facts are our friends. The reality is Israel was not running out of food. Um, they said, we're starving out here, and any parent can relate, right? Or anybody at about 1230 on a Sunday afternoon, we all think we're starving and got to have something. That's the way we feel. Few of us in the room have really known the pangs of hunger, though. Very few of us have opened empty cupboards, empty refrigerators, and had no money to go anywhere to get food. Very few of us probably have known that. That's a real thing that most of the world actually knows. They're not even in a situation. Because in chapter 17, verse 3, you don't have to turn there yet, but they talk about all the flocks they have that they want to have watered. So they've got all these herds that they had brought out of Egypt. Remember, they could drink milk, they could make cheese if they needed to, and if necessary, they could even eat some meat. But here's the thing. We're out here where you brought us. You brought us out here, and we can't figure this out. The word grumbling here hardly does justice. This is not just murmuring or complaining. This is not just wearing a t-shirt that says must be nice. Like to those that have. Must be nice to have food. We don't have food. We don't know anything about that. This is not smirky sarcasm or even sardonism. No, this is actually the word better should be rendered open rebellion. The great question of the Exodus, the great mission of God with Israel getting out of Egypt was this, it was worship. Remember, we talked about that. It was who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve Pharaoh? God wanted his people to serve him alone, but now the Israelites are saying, we would rather serve Pharaoh. Patrick Henry's famous quote is what? Give me liberty or give me death. The Israelites aren't even saying that. They're saying, give us bondage or give us death. They're rebelling against God's plan for their salvation and their sanctification. But God, miraculously, graciously, I don't get it, provides for them again. Look at verses four and five. The Lord says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion. He goes through some of the rules of what happens there. We know this as manna. We think that's what it was called because that's like the flavor of Krispy Kreme donut that it was. By the way, I read in an illustration that was written uh, in the 1800s, so pre-Krispy Kreme, just so you know. The guy said this Krispy Kreme, and it was spelled funky, like English people spell stuff. This Krispy Kreme surface that was on the thing, I was like, you know what? You just can't get away from it. The Lord's good. And there's one nearby, just saying. Anyway, so they go out and there's manna everywhere. This is the supply of the Lord, but manna was not the name of the stuff necessarily. Manna is what they come out and said, manna, which basically means, what is this? And so it just kind of stuck. That's what they called it, the manna from heaven. God responds with mercy here, not judgment. The accusation was, you brought us out here to kill us, and God says, I'll feed you. Tony Merida draws out four aspects of God's provision here with the manna that I think are worth noting. You should write these down. Wink, hit, there may be a test. You should write these down. When God provided this bread from heaven, the first thing I want you to notice is it was supernatural. Again, people have tried to explain this away. It has not worked at the scale that it needs to work. One 
thing that I read longer than I care to admit was this excretion of locusts that they could leave out. It would be out in the morning. And I'm going, okay, but how many locusts does it take to feed this many people? And then also for them to go like, we've never seen anything like this before. If that was a common thing, then anyway, that was the best one. It goes downhill from there, trying to explain away. No, this was supernatural. This was God. It was bread from heaven. The next thing to note is it was sufficient. It was sufficient. I want you to go back and read this chapter yourself, and here are some notes to help guide you. It was sufficient. God gave them enough for the day. Some tried to keep it. It would spoil beyond that. And then God institutes the principle of the Sabbath for them through this and gives them enough for two days when they need to do a Sabbath. And uh, it's a beautiful picture here. But God gave them enough. Remember, give us this day our daily bread. Yeah. The next thing to note is it was sacred. God directed Moses to save a bit of this, about an omer of it especially. And it was eventually put into the Ark of the Covenant where later we'll find the two tablets were placed that contain the law. So it was supernatural. It was sufficient. It was sacred. I'm a preacher. You know another S is coming. It was sanctifying. Ah, there's that word again. It was sanctifying. Now, I do want you to note that text. It's a different passage. For those of you watching online, if you don't have the notes in front of you, the passage for sanctifying is in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Just quickly, let me touch a few aspects of that verse. It says, you'll remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might, hear the reasons, humble you, test you, and know what was in your heart. God wasn't punishing them. He was humbling them, testing them to see what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandment or not. And when he humbled you and let you hunger, he fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Hey, we just heard that. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was bread from heaven. God also fed them with quail in this season. He feeds them with manna. God was not just filling their bellies. He was trying to shepherd their hearts. And it's the same with us. God is faithful to provide for us. Scene three. We go to water from the rock. Here we go again. They're in the wilderness. They're out of water. Chapter 17 we're into now. Again, this is your homework. You're going to read from 1522 to 17.7. They're in the wilderness. They're out of water again. And the purpose is their sanctification. God had led them away from this place of provision to where there was nothing to drink. Surely this time they got it, right? It's so soon. None of us have to learn lessons, the same lesson over and over like this, right? Nobody? Just, just these these Israelites that just can't seem to get it. And those disciples who are so hard-headed, right? It's so easy for me to sit up here in my chair with my button buttoned and my tie tied and said, oh, they should have done better. Follow me around for a week and watch me spiral pretty quickly when I get selfish and self-centered. Here we go again. What happens? Verses two through four. The people quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water to drink. Wow. Moses said, why are you quarreling with me? Why do you, this is different, test the Lord? I'd underline that. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled, so they quarreled and grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall you have me to do with this people? They're ready to stone me. I mean, wow, just wow, y'all, come on. Complaining is such a serious sin. It's more serious than we might think. The Bible says in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Think about how over and over we read about Israel's complaining before the Lord and to Moses. They grumbled under Pharaoh in Exodus 2. They grumbled at the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. They grumbled at Mara. We just read that. They grumbled about their leaders all throughout. They grumbled in the wilderness when they got nervous about food. Here they're grumbling now about water, but this time it's different. This time they're putting God on trial. I wonder if you see any similarities in your own life as we carefully look at this pattern that falls out here. A few things to write down, really short, little subpoints, three subpoints under this. You got it? Here's the trial they did. Number one, they demanded God's provision. They didn't ask, they didn't request, they demanded. Look back at verse 2 in your Bibles if you've got them open. In in 17.2, the word of the Lord says, give us water to drink. Wow, they quarreled with him. We expect this of ill-behaved children who have not yet learned the process of developing manners. We expect that of them. But even with kids, we don't tolerate it for long, do we? Aren't we quick to say, Honey, there's a better way to ask. Dads, we would love to speak like that, but a lot of times we say, if you talk to me like that again, I'm, yeah, don't finish that thought, please. Right? Boy, or we go, you know, old school, don't know, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. No. We we expect it from children, but we don't even tolerate it from them, and here they are, give us water, quarreling. What about us? Do you ever make demands on God, insisting that he works on your timetable exactly the way you want him to work? And if he doesn't, does he then have to prove himself? Hmm. The second thing they did was they questioned God's protection. They questioned God's protection. Verse 3. They say, you, you brought us out here. Did you bring us out here to kill us and our children? Now, they're looking at Moses, but this complaint, make no mistake, is against God. Did you bring us out here to die? Are you leaving me alone? What are you doing to me? What about us? Do you ever say things like that? What are you trying to do to me, God, here? Are you trying to kill me here in this trial? Do you not love me? Are you punishing me? Are you trying to hurt me? God's not trying to hurt you. He loves you with an everlasting love. He has brought you through a greater exodus than Israel out of Egypt. He brought you out of death into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and he's called you to walk with him, but he is interested in your sanctification. You're not alone. Third thing they did was doubt God's presence. In verse 7 of chapter 17, it says, it's the last thing, it's the final question. 
Moses is going to the Lord. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling, because they tested the Lord by saying, you see it? It's the last phrase in the verse. Is the Lord among us or not? God, are you here or not? You said you'd never leave me nor forsake me, but I don't feel you and I don't see you and I don't hear you. What about us? Is that your mantra? Are you tempted to think that God has left you alone? That is nonsense, and it's a lie. None of these accusations are true for Israel, and they're not true for us either as children of God. We can spiral into thinking like this when we forget, or better, when we choose not to remember that our God is who He is, and what He has done for us in the past becomes like a faded memory we bury. That, that's a problem for us. We start spiraling when we wallow in ungratefulness and self-centeredness and immaturity and insecurity. But we must remember the nature of God. We've got to remember, like the psalmist says, the deeds of the Lord, the wonders and the work and the holiness of our God. Deuteronomy 31 is the Lord. It's the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. This is what we know about God. The psalmist would say in Psalm 37, I've been young and now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. This is what we know of our God. 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite passages, says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, yes, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, mm -hmm, but we are not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. Why? Because we know about God. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us, sanctifying us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We don't look at the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. This is our God. This is the truth. Let the church say amen. We trust God. We don't spiral making demands, questioning his protection, and doubting his presence. Moses prays, and God provides water from the rock. Quickly, let's glance at this last passage here, verses 5 and 6. He says, pass on before the people. In verse, he says, take in your hand the staff that you struck the Nile with. Verse 6, I'll stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. What in the world? <laughs> I mean, what does this prove? Well, it proves everything. It proves everything about God. It totally invalidates all of their earlier complaints because the Lord is in fact providing. The Lord is in fact protecting them and he is in fact present with them. The water flowing from the rock proves all these things. Very quickly this morning, let's look at a few lessons we learned from there and then of course, if I didn't make the connection to Christ being the rock that water came from, I should be defrocked. So I'm gonna go there. Give me just a few minutes. Let's look at some lessons that we can learn from Israel in this stage. 
I would say first and foremost, our salvation sets us free, but our sanctification shows others his glory. It is not the normal nature of God to take people to heaven the second they get saved. You ever thought about that? If the whole thing about salvation was to get you to heaven, why, why are you still here? Just say it. That, you like that grammar, don't you? Why are we still here? If the whole reason to get us is just, if our salvation is just to get us into heaven, why are we still here? Why didn't Amy was like, Lord, and forgive me, and wash me, cleanse me, and I want to be made new. Yes, he's made new. Where'd he go? That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. God is glorified, revealed, and sown. The people see the holiness of God lived out in us as we live this thing called life, and we display his mercy and love and the fruit of the Spirit to those around us. Our salvation sets us free, yes, but our sanctification shows others His glory. Here's another lesson I've learned from this. Complaining is cultivated more in our hearts than by our actual circumstances. That one stings a little bit. Complaining is cultivated more in our hearts than by our actual circumstances. Ouch. I don't really need to say much more about that except to say, we need to wash ourselves with the water of the word, constantly asking the Lord to make us new, to transform our minds and thinking, and to have renewed minds. Third lesson from these scenes. God provides for his people. He gives us what we truly need, but remember, he's the all-sufficient provider, and he is actually all we need. If Israel would have focused on him, in this, I don't know that it would have played out exactly the way it did. I know they wouldn't have complained like they did, that's for sure. When you think about the moments that you have spiraled, they were probably moments that if you're honest, you hadn't turned your eyes upon Jesus and looked full in his wonderful face. Lessons from the scenes. Now let's talk about Christ in these scenes. We've encountered Christ throughout our study in Exodus. We saw him at the birth of Moses. We saw him as the baby in the basket who was saved, born to be the Savior. We saw him at the burning bush where Moses meets the great I Am. We saw him in all of God's signs and wonders. We see Jesus at the Red Sea where God's people were baptized from death into life. We see Jesus in the wilderness too. The sweet desert springs refresh us with living water. The manna tastes like true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. But when we come to this rock, struck so that life-giving water could come forth, wow, do we see Christ here. God did this for us in the person of his own son. We are a thirsty people, thirsty for living water that will never run dry. The world offers false oases all around us with poor sugary substitutes that rob us of our nourishment and they rob us from being satisfied in our deepest places. We need water. We also stand on shaky ground in our rebellion in a world of shifting sand. We need a rock to stand on. Paul beats us to the punch in his letter to Corinthians. I'll finish with that verse from 1 Corinthians 10 where yes, he's talking about idolatry but he describes what's happening here that we've just read in these passages. The rock was Christ, why? Because he was struck, 
Christ was struck with a divine judgment. This is what happened to him on the cross. Christ was bearing the curse of our sin and God struck him with the rod of his justice. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. The judgment that Christ endured on the cross is proof of our protection. It shows that we won't suffer the eternal death for our sins. God has taken the judgment of our guilt upon himself and now we're safe for all eternity if we're in Christ. The rock was also Christ because it flowed with life-giving water. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, Jesus said, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Paul loops us back through all this in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, talking about these scenes, and all who drank that same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. Three scenes. You may have just come off a great victory, but I promise testing may be just around the corner, but Christ is faithful. Let's stand together. I'm gonna ask the musicians to come this morning. We're gonna sing a couple songs and we'll have communion. To those who are thirsty, come, drink from the water of life. To all who are hungry for something more, Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. He's the bread of life. Our God makes bitter water sweet. He is the bread from heaven that satisfies. And He's the well that will never run dry. If we were at a camp meeting somewhere under a tent, like in days gone by, and there was sawdust on the floor, I think somebody, after that kind of Jesus showing himself through the text, would come to an altar, would repent and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're not in that setting, but if you wanted to come forward and pray, you certainly can. I'll be down front to pray with you while they're singing. But if you're online, you don't need to come forward on sawdust to do business with God. You don't have to move from your seat right where you're sitting at home with that screen in your hand or looking on another device, right where you're standing here while they're singing, you could bow your head and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. I'm coming to the bread of life, to the water of life. I need the rock that will sustain me. Father, take these words this morning. Continue to pierce us. Use us for your glory. Lord, we worship you and respond with obedience thanking you for your faithfulness in every test and through every triumph. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Let's sing together.